Welcome to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. Solidarity Winnipeg is working to lay the basis for an eco-socialist political organization. By that, we mean we are a small group of like-minded people who work in a coordinated way in community groups, in unions, and on campuses to build grassroots power, to educate people, to be effective eco-socialist organizers, and to build support for the long-term goal of breaking with capitalism and starting a transition to eco-socialism. Because Winnipeg is located on Treaty 1 territory, we acknowledge that Treaty 1 is the homeland of Anishinaabe, Cree, OG Cree, Dakota, Dene peoples, and the Métis Nation. The Canadian state has carried out genocide, ethnic cleansing, and forced removal of Indigenous people in order to clear the land for settlement by Europeans. The colonization and oppression of Indigenous peoples is not a thing of the past. It continues today. But around the world, Indigenous peoples are leaders in the fight against capitalism and environmental destruction. We have a lot to learn from Indigenous cultures and teachings that will help us heal our relationship with the land and with each other. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Solidary Winnipeg podcast. This is episode seven, and the topic we are going to be discussing is Bread and Roses, Why Anti-Capitalist Feminism Rocks and is Good. I am Teddy, and I'm a member of Solidarity Winnipeg, and on this episode, I'm also joined by another Solidarity Winnipeg member. Me, Posey. <laughs> there, that's what hey, yeah. Hi, Posey. Okay, awesome. So we're here, and we're going to talk about it, and Posey's going to start us, start us off on the first point, um, which we are going to outline different types of feminism that you probably have already encountered. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Teddy. Uh, we're going to start off with the kind of broad groupings of feminism that no one's agreed on, but we're, we're deciding to, to group them this way. So we're going to start off with liberal feminism, which is kind of the, the big one. You could also call it mainstream feminism or corporate feminism. Some people call it white feminism. This is probably the one you're most familiar with. And that's basically the idea that women and men are equal. And the movement is for gaining equality to men under the law. So um, that's kind of, I think, you know, hard to disagree with for a lot of people. Um, although liberal feminism gets a bad rap for a lot of good reasons. Other things that, you know, might help you identify liberal or mainstream feminism would be a focus on individual choice and individualism generally, usually in terms of reproductive rights. So think pro-abortion, um, pro-sex work, sometimes, sometimes not. Uh, the acceptance of sexual and gender diversity within certain limits. So that would be, you know, the inclusion within a heteronormative sense of a nuclear family. So an example of this would be gay marriage. And usually, you know, in, in pop culture, the way this sort of feminism presents itself is in terms of representation and celebrity culture. So usually this would be, you know, if you think about discourses around the Bechtel test, or we need female um, or a woman-led Marvel movie, or we want to see more women nominated for best director at the Academy Awards, or we want to see more women CEOs, or whatever that be. Um, usually that's you know, a kind of key attribute of liberal feminism. 
And another point I would put in here, which is, you know, not universal, this is a generalization. Uh, liberal feminists tend to lean towards carceral responses to sexual violence and violence against women. So what does that mean? That means that usually liberal feminists will identify rightly um, that one of the problems uh, that uh, patriarchy puts on women is sexual violence. So how liberal feminists tend to deal with issues of domestic violence or rape, sexual assault, um, would be carceral responses. So we need to have more laws against this. We need to change the law to protect women, uh, things like this. So if you think about the Me Too movement, um, there's some, you know, I would say the Me Too movement was mostly a liberal feminist movement, though there were other aspects of it. If you think about the idea that men need to be equally punished um, under the law and incarcerated for sexual assault and violence against women. And the method of change, so the method to get equality, I already kind of mentioned it before, under the law, um, for most liberal feminists is the idea that if we have more women in power or powerful positions, that will lead to more gender equality and a kind of trickle down or top down approach. So if we have more women in politics, if we have more women leading corporations, if we have more women in the police force or the military, that will then create change and create more equality in broader society. Generally, it is a top-down approach and it doesn't challenge you know, the underlying systems of capitalism. Um, the idea is that capitalism can be made to be a gender equal system. Uh, and some notable feminists I'll kind of add in here would include Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem and Justin Trudeau, kind of a famous liberal feminist here in, here in Canada. Continuing the overview of different kinds of feminism that you may have encountered, the next one I'm going to talk about is radical feminism. Now, radical feminism goes further than liberal feminism in giving a construction of what the problem is um, and goes into more depth about patriarchy. Radical feminism usually holds that patriarchy is the primary form of oppression in human society and needs to be abolished. And of course, patriarchy does need to be abolished, but I'll get into more details here. There are some problems with it in how it is situated and how general oppressions are constructed in a radical feminist framework. There's a huge emphasis on biology in radical feminism, and biology is presented as the basis and the foundation of gender and gender-based oppression. Women are oppressed because of their biological reproductive roles, childbearers, and what connects to this in a really problematic way is how trans people are treated or how trans people are considered under radical feminist lens. So if you've heard of the phrase TERFs, Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist, T-E-R-F, that's a huge problem. And it's not the case that every radical feminist is a TERF and not all TERFs are radical feminists, even though TERFs does have radical feminist in the acronym. But the idea that distilling uh, oppression based on a biological foundation is next door to the idea that, well, a person who doesn't have a particular biology is not connected or considered a true woman or a true man or all the kinds of things connected to a very transphobic 
way of framing things and totally misunderstanding the way that gender oppression and sexual oppression work in our society. Some other things connected to radical feminism that you may have encountered is the phrase all sex is rape, because the recognition that women are oppressed, cis women are oppressed uh, by patriarchy. And the conclusion that's drawn from there is that every sexual act is not made free of coercion and is not able to be given with the full consent. Uh, This is obviously a problem to consider all sex as rape because it undermines um, the agency and the decision-making power of women and and everybody. Um, It also draws a very strange line between between the real oppression that exists and 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 therefore the options that exist or how to navigate it and it doesn't really relate to most people's understanding of themselves or understanding of the world so it's not really fair to to take a slogan or a phrase and treat that as a stand-in for the whole framework but this one in particular quote all sex is rape end quote is is a useful one to to consider why that framework allows for that kind of perspective. There's also related to the idea of there being any sort of expression of gender or expression of sexuality being made without coer- under coercion and without consent is the idea that any, any kind of beauty norm or anything in, involved in any sort of sex industry or any kind of accidental or intentional or um, decided glamorization of sexuality is intrinsically oppressive, is intrinsically oppressive and an objectification of women. And some people have even argued back against this and talked about there, there isn't always a direct line either between whether objectification automatically means bad, <laughs> because people can choose to... <laughs> engage in various kinds of objectification and that's you know there's a question to ask about like is that permissible or is that not but that sort of line of thinking or that sort of agency of individual might have um, within of course an exploitative system with many oppressions that that line of questioning is not really open under radical feminist perspective another point here is that uh, radical feminism is often associated with uh, disruptive and direct action and protests and demonstration and um, community organizing as a method of change. And of course, tactics of change have are, are mostly neutral, like tactics can be employed in a good way or in a bad way or a positive way or a negative way. But definitely, when you think about liberal feminism, and you contrast that with radical feminism, you you know that it's it's just more likely that um, a radical feminist approach will employ more militant tactics. And I think that that's actually like a really useful thing in, in many contexts. Some notable radical feminists are Jermaine Greer, Andrea Dworkin, Catherine McKinnon. And if you can think of more and you want to um, mention them or add them to the list, send us an email or uh, comment on our actual podcast. Yeah, engage with us. And I think that's a good, the the kind of framing there, Teddy, of, you know, the liberal feminist approach versus the radical feminist approach, um, that these two strains of feminism are kind of in this dialogue or, or opposition to each other and often 
you know, currently, I would say in the 2020s, because especially in, well, Canada as well, but I think it's more known in the UK, the kind of rise of turfdom, they really benefit from a real backlash that exists to liberal feminism, um, because they get to kind of pose as, here are the problems with liberal feminism, here's the radical approach, because, you know, there is within radical feminism, the turf experience, I don't want to conflate the two, but they are they are connected. There is, you know, this, this more of a collective understanding of um, oppression that exists within radical feminism as compared to liberal feminism. So, you know, you would see that in this, this question of sexual objectification of women where a radical fem uh, feminist would see this as, you know, as there's a social construction, there are bigger forces at play rather than just your own choice. But a liberal feminist would kind of be like, Nope, it's all up to you if you want to get plastic surgery, if you want to wear makeup, all of these things, fair game. And actually, whatever you do, just because you're a woman is, you know, by itself feminist, um, if you do it with, you know, enough of a backbone, basically, while a radical feminist might kind of complicate that a bit. And I'm not going to weigh in on, on that, because I think it's a false dichotomy, because there is this whole kind of third category that we're going to talk about now, which is uh, different types of anti-capitalist feminism. So there are actually quite a few radical feminists who are anti-capitalist, but there are some key differences in just how, um, you know, Marxist feminists or socialist feminists would understand, you know, the basis of patriarchy or gender-based oppression in society. And that would be, you know, labor, that these things have a material base. So most, if not all, socialist and Marxist feminists would say that woman subjugation didn't, wasn't created with capitalism. These things existed before, before capitalism. But once capitalism entered the scene, uh, women's subjugation and patriarchy completely changed. These things work together. There is kind of a dual system at play. Part of this ideology or this broad group, there's a lot of things that go under this. It's just the basic idea that there will be no liberation for women under capitalism. So you can't really just get rid of the patriarchy. Um, you also have to get rid of capitalism for women to be free. Yeah, and another point connected to that is that an anti-capitalist feminism recognizes that under capitalism exactly like you can't treat patriarchy as separate from capitalism in terms of how to how to liberate oppression um, but also um, does not discount the the real ways that the oppression is manifested under capitalism specifically through women being financially dependent on men um, and this is structurally, right? Like women get paid less. Women um, are expected to do all kinds of free labor or underpaid labor connected to anything related to household work or caregiving and parenting and all these kinds of things. And then when doing the same work as men in, in, the, in the job place, getting paid uh, vastly less. And this is right here in Canada. This is in the United States of America, this is in Western Europe, and it's across the world. It's not, uh, a lot of times people think about this as being sort of over there or exotic, exoticized and far away, but it's, it's right in the so-called first world, but really the imperial centers of the world. 
this is a reality here. Yeah, recognizing the material basis as Posey pointed out, recognizes that material reality as well, that the labor that women do is both done in a way that makes them dependent on men by not being compensated properly and also vastly constrains their time and their energies because they're expected to do so much more in order to keep society running. Yeah, totally. And I think that that's a key difference between the kind of radical feminism, this idea that the basis of gender-based oppression is biology, is, you know, the fact that quote unquote women have uteruses or have, you know, biological reproductive functions. That is the basis of um, oppression, while anti-capitalist feminists would think of it more in terms of this like labor relation system. And usually uh, Marxist or socialist feminists would connect this to other types of systemic and structural oppression. So racism, um, colonialism, those sorts of oppressive structures as well. So in terms of method of change, uh, we're talking kind of, again, similar to, to radical feminists, um, things that more tend toward the collective, working class movements, strikes and protests, solidarity building with other working class movements uh, tend to be a part of Marxist and socialist feminists. And often these feminists are a part of like a bigger socialist or Marxist group and are kind of like carving a specific feminist feminist section of this movement in order to make the movement more effective, right? Like in order to have the working class movement appeal to as many working class people as possible. At least that's what how I would think of it. Um, so some notable feminists that we put in this category that you might've heard of, B. Clara Zetkin, Sylvia Federici, and Angela Davis. And Angela Davis got a lot of um, much warranted attention last summer. So you've probably uh, heard of Angela Davis. So those would be notable Marxist and socialist feminists. Yeah, and I will just add to just, you know, lots of the listeners, uh, we were talking about this before this episode, Posey and I, and we're kind of expecting a lot of listeners to be more familiar with socialism and anti-capitalism than feminism necessarily. So thinking about you listeners, <laughs> the, the thing that I think is worth driving home again on this, on this piece, on this point about anti-capitalist feminism and a Marxist feminism and a socialist feminism, or even an anarchist feminism in, in some cases, is the idea that looking at where power needs to be built and looking at what the problem is that needs to be changed is, is, is very different in this, in this perspective. So the reason why Marxist feminists work with other people and build power in that way and recognize overlapping of oppressions is because they really see that uh, capitalism as a whole subjugates a whole class of people. And that comes through particularly in specific ways based on gendered oppression. But just because the gender depression is there doesn't negate nor erase the reality that it's simultaneously happen happening in a class oppression, a class exploitation relationship between a ruling class and a working class. And it's not the case that socialist feminists try to reduce the oppression, sexist oppression to just a matter of class. It's not just the case that they say 
at the end of the day, it's all about the working class and the ruling class, but rather recognizing that it's, it's, it's both. It's an exploitation based on class, woven in, built in, completely mixed in with a gendered oppression happening at the same time that is expressed again through class. And you can see this in all kinds of ways. For example, you can see that oftentimes the lowest paid people are people working in all kinds of retail and caregiving and like jobs that involve a lot of taking care of people and having to be friendly. And oftentimes it's women who are doing that work. So a radical feminist perspective differs in this in a few ways. And I'm not going to get into all those details, but I'll just say that it's thinking about what kind of power needs to be based and along what lines and how that connects to the whole, the idea of building power based in a gender group, but not having a broader connection to how that needs to unite as a whole to topple the system is a, is a strategy that doesn't work because it doesn't accurately assess the way that the exploitation and the oppression of the system is. So that's where an anti-capitalist feminism takes a different tact. And I think it's the most effective of the three. Yeah, I think that point leads us well into the kind of next next thing that we want to talk about, which are some kind of key questions or, or concepts that we want to drive home about feminism uh, generally here. And the first one is social reproduction theory, which we already kind of talked about just now in terms of anti-capitalist feminisms. That's kind of a developing and broader theory about specifically the material basis of gender and gender-based oppression in terms of labor. Um, so that basically to boil it down as, as succinctly as possible is the idea that the labor that is needed to keep workers alive and productive and to reproduce themselves, um, that labor is all gendered. So as Teddy already kind of mentioned in terms of care work and emotional labor, um, these things would be cooking, cleaning, childbearing, raising children, education, uh, emotional and effective labor. All of these things are required under a capitalism system. You know, these aren't add-ons. These are things that are needed um, to get have workers be born, be alive, show up to work on time, be able to work effectively uh, to produce surplus value for the for the boss or for the owner. Um, go home, uh, rinse and repeat. So that stuff happens, and it's labor, and it's done by people, and those people tend to be um, women. And usually this labor is devalued or unpaid. Um, so it's kind of treated as less important than the labor that produces profits, the labor that then happens at the workplace. And under neoliberalism in, in 2020, these things are a lot more kind of, you know, these things are messy. It's not like a clear cut. Like there are a lot of, there is a lot of labor in this area that is now paid work. It's not just unpaid domestic labor, but as you mentioned, Teddy, a lot of times now that labor is severely underpaid, often relied by immigrant or migrant labor in a place like Canada. Um, we can just kind of think about, you know, those who were hardest hit by the um, COVID pandemic that we're still living through, elder care workers, childcare workers, cleaning staff, all of these jobs are would be kind of categorized as pink collar jobs. It's kind of the sociological term for them. So these jobs are 
um, mostly women and mostly women of color. And they tend to be some of the lowest paid jobs and most precarious jobs in our society. And that's not an accident, um, which is what social reproduction theory would, would point to. That is this kind of gendered labor division uh, that creates this idea that these jobs are, are less important and less valued um, than other jobs. And you can even see this in jobs that require professional education. So nurses, teachers, social workers, you know, a lot of these jobs are kind of famously overworked, underpaid, um, and they're jobs that require a lot of emotional and effective labor, as well as care work. And what allows capitalists to underpay these workers is gender oppression, basically. Oh, the last point about this is that one of the reasons that, you know, the women's liberation or queer liberation um, threatens uh, capitalism is that all diversions from the gender and sex binary challenge this economic arrangement, you know? Capitalists get a pretty good deal um, from underpaying this labor, kind of similar to how capitalists cannot put a price on um, effects that industrial, you know, operations have on the environment. Similarly, they don't have to pay for a lot of the work that's done to keep their profits flowing. Um, which is this gendered work. So uh, any sort of thing that challenges uh, the nuclear family and these gender roles does have an economic and material challenge to, to capitalism. So I would, I'd put that as the, the final point there. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk about this all in the discussion because there's, there's so many things on this. Um, but I'm going to move to intersectionality and identity politics, these are pretty big conversations that can spend uh, a whole podcast series on any of them, but let's jump into it. So intersectionality, it, there's, a, there's a pro and a con to it, uh, or I'll, I'll frame it in a different way, actually. Um, you can get at things from a more left way, uh, a more left framework or a less left framework. Intersectionality. The term intersectionality was came from was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a legal academic, and was talking about specifically how Black women were treated under the law. But the idea of intersectionality, um, without using the word intersectionality, comes from before then the Combahee River Collective, um, a collective of Black radical socialists. Um, they put together a statement talking about exactly how blackness and their gender work together and we need to understand that and we need to keep that in account while working within our socialist movements and our anti-capitalist movements if we want to do justice by pushing back against racial and gender oppression so intersectionality in a nutshell the word intersection is built into the term it's the idea that oppressions are not separable, they exist all together. You experience multiple oppressions on multiple axes at the same time. For example, if you experience uh, racial oppression, gender oppression, if you are experience oppression based on your sexuality, all these kinds of oppressions happening at the same time. And this is important, it's an important concept because to to act as if oppressions act separately is not reflective of reality. You end up in these weird 
dynamics which leave people behind. So intersectionality is important because it responds to the way that uh, taking a feminist approach without including other oppressions is inadequate and doesn't do the job it's tasked to do, which is fighting the oppression that people experience. But there's a limit and there's a mistaken way and a problematic way to think and use intersectionality. And it's important to note that one way is uh, described as the additive approach. The additive approach basically lists all the different kinds of oppressions a person, an individual can feel, can experience, I should say. And even though it is the case that multiple oppressions are experienced simultaneously in a way that is combined and creates a, a new experiential reality of what multiple oppressions happening simultaneously are, you can easily turn this into some sort of, not necessarily a competition, but you can have like a ledger list of say, these are like the various oppressions one individual experiences. And then you look at another and you say, well, these are the various lists of what another person experiences. And um, ultimately on one hand, it's very unlikely that two people are going to have the exact list of oppressions that they experience. So there's questions about, well, what's the basis of unity between different people? Um, if you're going to have um, all these extra delineations of what oppression gets added onto the list. Um, this person experiences 10, this person experiences 14. Okay, well, then the person who's 14 can't really work with the person who has 10 because they don't really experience it the same way. And you get into this sort of uh, thing that departs from reality in a way. And then the other problem with that too is that it treats, um, so it creates a kind of competition. It can create, it can be used in a way that promotes a competition between people who experience exp oppressions, um, vying for a spot of greater legitimacy from a moral perspective. That's a problem. Um, but another problem is that it doesn't really distinguish between the different harms people experience. And it just treats uh, even the metaphor of being at an intersection and if you know, intersectionality came from the idea that you're at an intersection and a car hits you and you don't know which intersection it came from because it hit you right in the middle of the intersection. And so what, what happened? How can you describe that? Um, it didn't, it, which street was it on when it hit you, but it's right in the middle of the intersection. So it, did it hit you from the first street, the second street, where, um, who gets the blame for the, for the car crash that happened in the middle of the intersection, which is in the zone that that's overlaps between all the all the streets coming at it. The intersection is a place that exists between all the streets. It's not any of those streets. But the problem with this metaphor is that it it just treats any oppression as one more street, one more electron, one more um, mode, one more one more piece. And they're all equally valid. They're all, the relationship between them is not really clear in that framework. Is there a relationship between them? Um, the only relationship seems to be that you're the one who experiences all of them. Uh, and it also treats class as one other piece of this puzzle. So you might be oppressed by racism. You might be oppressed by sexism, but you also might be oppressed by your class position. So when you're thinking about, well, who do you need to unify with in order to fight and challenge the oppressions? Um, you could imagine a situation where 
where you know you you unify with people of the ruling class bosses landlords and ceos who also experience some of the other oppressions you experience and and the logic there is to say well you both experience those oppressions so you're united in that way and again it erases the the broader dynamic of class exploitation which which mediates all these oppressions so when you have a framework that treats each oppression as a bullet point that converge into an individual or a group's experience you are limited if you're treating each of those oppressions as having a floating around lack of relation to each other or to the system as a whole and you in that so unless you have that anti-capitalist perspective you can make all kinds of blunders of who your allies are and who your enemies are um and you can also you can also dismiss opportunities of solidarity based on the idea that two people with a differing list of oppressions don't have a common interest in in challenging the system as a whole of course it should also and always be said that while it's important to recognize the potential for unity and recognize common enemies none of that none of that is going to be useful if if people say that as a means of denying or minimizing people's unique oppressions and experiences and that's an important idea to carry out of intersectionality into any kind of organizing to recognize that not two oppressions are not identical and that having multiple oppressions have a different cumulative effect than treating them just as individually but that has to be within the bounds in my opinion um the bounds of of recognizing that class is not just one of these other oppressions it actually has a huge effect on all of them and the potential for unity is based on finding a way to recognize class a class solidarity while simultaneously supporting and challenging oppressions within society and not and not making that a secondary project really well said there teddy I was just thinking about the like the and thinking about the streets and the intersection that an issue I have with, and maybe not necessarily intersectionality as as Crenshaw conceived it, but in terms of how it's used, is it still kind of plays into the idea that um, whiteness is neutral or being a man is is neutral? That the idea of of you know that that you can experience you know that these added identities that on top of you, it's like no one ever experiences womanhood or femininity on its own, right? Like everyone is, we live in a world um, of racial constructs. Everyone exists in one that's, you know, applied to you. So, and this is the same thing with genders. No one ever just experiences, or this the same thing with race. It's like, you're never just one thing. It, it is uh, on top of all these other things. And that's, I think, kind of, the idea of, of intersexually as it was intended is that you, you can't separate those things. And often how it's used is kind of the attempt to separate things or to also equate certain things. Like there was um, a very popular 
I, I'm on a, I don't make TikToks, but I watch TikToks sometimes. And there was a kind of really big like TikTok conversation where someone made a TikTok, you might've heard about it, um, where someone was like, is it just me or are like black men and white women kind of the same? And then everyone was like, yeah, they are the same because they're one step away from being white men. Like, <laughs> yeah, Teddy, Teddy's face says it all. And a lot of people agreed with that of like, yeah, because they're both bad oppressors. Um, and then there were, you know, a lot of people who kind of chimed in and were like, actually, that's not, that's not intersectionality. Here's what intersectionality is. But I think that's a great example of, of how, um, how kind of thinking about it as a, oh, I, I have this thing and I have that thing and, and they add together and it's on this ladder that's, you know, the farther away you get from white man is, you know, how, how complicit or not complicit you are in the system. And it really, you know, there are good reasons to analyze these things. And I'm not saying you shouldn't think or even overthink oppression, like think as much about oppression as you want. I think that's awesome. But there should be, the thinking about it should be with the objective of leading towards how can we come together, not how we can, you know, pick each other apart and put us all to separate groups. Because at the end of the day, we are trying to build power with one another. And the goal should be to try to build power in a way that can have as many people safely a part of the movement as possible. But that is that is complicated. And I think and it's something we've talked about in past episodes is something that's complicated this a lot is the fact that those in power have intentionally, you know, everyone's, maybe not everyone, but everyone I know is familiar with the, the recent CIA advertisements. That, did they use the word intersectional, Teddy? Yeah, it's like, uh, I, I should look it up right now, but it said something, I don't know if this was a phrase, but what comes to mind is like, you know, my CIA is intersectional, but I don't think it was that, but it was some version of that that was um, definitely trying to um, appeal to a very, very misguided idea of what intersectionality ever could could be used for in a good way. Like, yeah, you're remembering that right, but I don't remember the exact phrase. Yeah, so I think that that's a, a thing to kind of be, be wary of too from both directions of, from you, as you said, that the more left direction and the, the other direction, but that it is a term, same with identity politics, that have kind of gone through the ringer of both, you know, the capitalist class using them to their own ends, and then the reactionary right creating a, a fake idea of what this thing is and attacking that. And then you have people on the left um, taking that reactionary definition as what it actually is. I think that's happened maybe more at this point with identity politics um, than with intersectionality, though I'm sure it will happen with, inter like we've all seen what's happened uh, with critical race theory in the States right now. So it's bound to happen. It's not something you can really stop from happening the way these, these concepts get adapted and used and misused. But I think the, the reason I wanted to talk about intersectionality in particular in this episode is because there is, you know, a really important core idea here that shouldn't be discarded because of how it's been co-opted and treated as a straw man and so on and so forth. As you know, we were talking about it's the goal is to um, to create solidarity um, and you know treating this 
imaginary white male worker as the default class idea um, as a road, you know, that that's not helpful either. Um, so that that's an important thing to, to actually have a have a realistic idea of what the working class is and the different sorts of, of roles and labor roles that different people have. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I feel like on this topic too, there's, you know, in case anyone is not familiar with some of these sort of historical things, like oftentimes when people say things like women got the right to vote at this time, it's often talking about white, in Canada, for example, white, British, uh, French women, European women, not Indigenous women. Um, when it when there's a talk about um, this is the time where we're talking about pay gap between men and women. It's not talking about trans women. Um, it's not, it's usually talking about cisgendered women and it's usually not talking about migrant women. There's all kinds of ways in which there's a danger and it's inaccurate, it's unhelpful, it's harmful to, to be narrow and exclusionary in who, who is being talked about as the, as the subject um, when, when we're talking about oppression. And thankfully, um, these problems are always being pushed back against by the people who are excluded. Um, indigenous women push back against this. Black women push back against this. It's, it's not something that remains unchallenged, but it's important to be uh, aware of that, be proactive about it, and try to um, unlearn, unlearn that sort of exclusionary socializing that even here, socialists on the left, happens time and time again. And the other thing, just on the point you made earlier about what you saw on TikTok, Posey, and people make saying like, oh, isn't, isn't this the same like black men and white women? Aren't they the same because of their proximity to white men who are the, the, the highest power mongers of the whole group and therefore could just do this simple calculation? I think, you know, on the face of it, that's ridiculous and laughable and offensive, but I think there's another thing that's revealed in that, which is you must be entirely disconnected from, from any kind of interacting with people on a personal level, groups, any kind of organizing to have that kind of a conclusion, to, to, for that to make some kind of sense that isn't challenged by your actual real life experience of um, talking with um, people in any of those groups. And I think that that sort of disconnection is, is not exclusively the fault of a person who repeats that nonsense. I think that that's a consequence of there being a lower amount of broad organizing than, than at other points. And I think that when there's that kind of large scale collective organizing, it raises people's um, real life experience, it convinces them of things, and then they, that kind of nonsense can't even make it past the the gates of their thought because they have so many real life experiences that contradict that but it's easy when when you're just sort of um it's not a, i'm not making a point against theory but when you're when you're in a theoretical in an abstract way of thinking about something but you're entirely disconnected from actually doing it so your theory floats as if it's just its own thing and not actually 
without a practical application. Like the whole point of theory is for practical application. It's not separate from that. So I, I think it's a dangerous combination of bad ideas and then low examples of real life testing it out. And then tons of, you know, um, group reinforcing, um, whether it's in people talking about it on TikTok a lot or amongst, you know, in my, in my union, there's all kinds of things people say back and forth and repeat it as if it's truth, but it's so disconnected from reality. Um, so I think it kind of all goes together and that's a socialist uh, feminism and a Marxist feminism recognizes that disconnection between people's material organizing experiences and theories they have. Yeah, I feel like that's a good segue into talking about the practical you know, that we, we established these things to, to talk about why feminism and the liberation of women and gender oppressed people should be central to socialist or for our group, eco-socialist organizing. So we've kind of touched on, on some ideas already, um, but I would like to start by saying it's just the right thing to do. We want to liberate as many people as we possibly can. And that's, I think that's just the, the basis of the whole thing. But then the, the next thing I wanted to say back, going back to the social reproduction theory idea, because I feel like for me, this, this really kind of um, was a light bulb moment for me because, you know, my coming from a, a, you know, wealthy background, I'm from Toronto, as I've probably said a thousand times in this podcast in a very annoying way, but I feel like I need to, because it's a really big podcast. Um, you know, that my political awakening in some ways was through liberal feminism. And that's why I kind of wanted to, to talk about liberal feminism in the beginning. So when I, you know, I kind of abandoned liberal feminism after I left teenhood. And my next kind of political awakening was, was discovering socialism. And I remember when I learned about reproductive theory, social reproduction, it was a big light bulb moment because I'd kind of abandoned feminism as a lot of people do who are introduced through liberal feminism or only know about liberal feminism is you kind of see its big faults and kind of just abandon it because you know a lot of kind of radical feminist movement has, has died off by this point in time. I'd say the more kind of active at least from my point of view, people can probably disagree. Um, the more active elements of radical feminism tend to be transphobic. So, you know, kind of socialist feminism doesn't have as much of a, a spotlight on it in terms of in a, in a mainstream sense. So learning about social reproduction theory was very much like, oh, this makes a lot of sense and really struck a chord. And I think is incredibly important into thinking about if the, the goal at the end of the day is to get rid of capitalism, revolutionary socialists in our group, we, we don't think that um, the system can be reformed. You know, practically the best way to overthrow a system or change a system fundamentally is to hit it at its weak spots and you have to understand how it functions. And a big part of how capitalism functions is through the subordination of, of women and women's labor. And if you don't think about that, then you're starting off so far behind. You know, you're really missing a major point into how, you know, the working class keeps this whole thing running. Um, that it's not only wage labor that keeps capitalism running, it's also this unpaid reproductive labor 
So I think that when you kind of think about it that way, it can really change the way you think about strikes, withholding labor, all those sorts of things. Um, because if you see this labor as valuable to the continuation of capitalism, then you can see the power in withholding that labor, um, which we've seen in a lot of um, strike movement uh, globally in the past five years. So I don't know, I can hand it off to you, Teddy, but I think for me, that's the most important point that I wanted to highlight here. Yeah, I I think that is an extremely important point. And I, and I guess it's not really an ad, but an add on I'll say is um, that even the title of this podcast, Bread and Roses, like, I mean, the it's a point of social reproduction, which time and time again, the lead and spark and respond to the oppression of society, the multiple oppression, the gender oppression, but also the exploitation, the capitalism, like the, the way that people um, who are doing the work are, are suffering or dying or not able to control all the value that's collectively produced. And instead a small group unfairly controls that, a small group of capitalists or the ruling class. You saw that the spark of the Russian revolution was obviously the conditions that were going on there, but the actual action that sparked it off was like a huge march that women led demanding, demanding bread demanding bread and roses right i mean it's it's not it's it, it, it's it makes perfect sense to focus on this and then also the the points of exploitation if you think about where um exploitation capitalist exploitation is the most intense like you think about for example canada and the extreme extreme exploitation happening by um, desecrating uh, the ecological systems and environment in order to get access to wood from logging, um, destroying the um, <clears throat> lands through, through flooding to make hydroelectric dams, uh, and of course mining. All this intense exploitation is happening um, in direct opposition to Indigenous peoples, and uh, the we one weapon consistently used to, to break through the uh, and to and to suppress the resistance in Canada and around the world is attacking and assaulting women, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. This happens, and the, this violence based on um, settlement and the work camps, primarily men working, cis men working, extremely violent, extremely gendered violence. It's it's at the intense points of capitalist exploitation. So. If your goal is to have a society that is liberatory for humans and set up for the flourishing of life and and people and the environment, and that means you have to reject oppression and reject capitalism. And if you do that, you need to strike and fight at the places where that exploitation is most intense. If you leave that untouched, um, the system goes on as as it with its own logic at the suffering of everybody and specifically at the suffering of women and specifically at the suffering of racialized women and specifically at the suffering of um, racialized women and um, women who are not cisgendered and and all the all the the groups we were talking about earlier so it instructs what kind of response you need when you when you see where that kind of violence is directed 
Yeah, totally, Teddy. And I think, you know, it's not a lot of ecofeminists have made the point that the, you know, the gendering of the earth and the environment as, as Mother Earth, as, as female, is a, a big part of the idea that, you know, these are the, that is the gender that is um, free to exploit and that is like endlessly, endlessly giving. Um, the, the biggest point is also just not seeing um, indigenous women as victims, but as truly the leaders of, of the movement. Um, that you know all the all the the blockades and actions that we've seen, well, at least I've seen in my lifetime. I know they, they stretch beyond my lifetime, have been led by women or have had women as a really key key feature um, of the movements, and it's just really fucking important. I will add now because it's something we didn't really get to is uh, trans liberation and queer liberation. We kind of touched on it here and there, and we didn't get to really talk about it. I guess I would want to add um, that there is a lot of kind of a, a false dichotomy similar to this difference between liberal feminism and radical feminism. This idea that gender and uh, liberation of sexualities is this kind of individualist, individualist action. It's all about individual choice and freedom and kind of a liberal conception of how the world works. Um, and a lot of advocacy that's accepted is that which seeks for equal treatment under the law. But there, there are other options and there is such thing as, as collective queer liberation. And I think that there's kind of a, one of the more obvious points that's often raised is there's a big difference between making um, trans identities legal and supporting the existence of trans people through funding healthcare. Uh, is a really kind of, I think, common example that there's a big difference between allowing someone to exist and actually like materially allowing them to exist how they how they wish to exist. So we didn't really get into it in a deep way, but I would say if your if your feminism isn't um, trans, not even just trans inclusive, but includes trans liberation as as a primary aspect of that feminism, then you're kind of missing the mark and should probably probably look both inward and outward so yeah i don't know if you have something to add there teddy yeah i feel like the idea i think an idea that keeps coming up here is um again like i, I like how you phrased it as a false dichotomy and so like a false dichotomy between um supporting the 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 quality of life um of a small group of people uh, presented as somehow a zero-sum game and an either-or situation. First of all, and if you're talking about trans and queer people in general, the claim small group of people probably needs to be just totally uh, rejected because that is sort of a myth <laughs> of cis-heteropatriarchy. So that's the first thing. So first of all, that dichotomy is not even a good one um, because it's not even a real dichotomy. But second of all, like just from a totally material perspective there's no instance where you will have the people think that oh why should why should something connected to fighting trans oppression be a mainstay of the agenda of a socialist um, and the assumption there is that there's these other problems we got to deal with this is an unrelated issue 
I mean, I, all the socialists I know would never say this. So maybe I'm just babbling and making mythology of my own here. But I, if, if people feel anything like that, like that's just wrong, firstly. But also, there's no way that anyone can, anyone's healthcare is safe if it's permissible to deny someone else their health. It's just, you can't have both, you know? You can't, if, if people don't have the right to, and the supported infrastructure to, to be able to flourish and have full expression of who they are and have access to everything they need to live a quality life, no one can. Like, no one is free till everyone is free. And of course, like, that is not to make a false equivalence between the, what the experience of oppression is for um, the gender oppression that trans people experience or that queer people experience, because it's not the same as what a cis um, heterosexual person experiences. Um, there's tons and tons of stats of the differences there. So it, I'm not making the claim that everybody experiences capitalism and oppression in the same way, but we're not trying to say, um, hey, you know what? Life is good enough for some people. Um, that's the end of like the horizon we're trying to reach. Like it's a constant, um, it's a constant conflict between the ruling class. They go after everything that we have. They go after the the gains we've already made they go even for cisgendered people they go after their access to adequate health care so it doesn't like it's just it's what's the word to use it's just i want to say like it's a very idiotic idea to think that you can somehow be safe on an island on your own while people left and right to you are being so immensely harmed and having you know, whether it's like less of a chance to get paid properly, whether it's increased homelessness, whether it's increased suicide rates, all the violence and suffering that trans and queer people experience, it's just totally ridiculous to think that that somehow can exist alongside you and you're on the route to the liberated society that we deserve. There's another question of why does our society do that? Why does that suffering why is that structurally embedded? And you touched on that earlier, Posey, about the, the way capitalism requires a certain level of reproduction to occur so that the people of the workers of today can replace themselves with the workers of tomorrow. There's that factor, but there's also, um, like I mentioned before, it's just a constant onslaught against um, gains that people have enjoyed um, just decades ago. So yeah, it's, it's related. This could be its own yeah. episode, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I would say that that's one of the things that pisses me off the most about TERFs in particular is this conflation of feminism and womanhood with cis, some cis woman's reproductive biology because that's even the you talk to a turf and it's like not all cis women have you like is a, a cis woman who loses her uterus or who has gone through menopause or is pre um 
prepubescent like are they not woman you know like that they'll often kind of get angry when you try to say menstruating people rather than just woman and it's like well yeah menstruating people is more specific because not every woman menstruates and not everyone who menstruates is a woman that's just like true like it's not an ideology like it's often kind of framed as they talk about as ideology and it's like well it actually is like more specific and more helpful to talk about menstruating as something that some people do rather than women do. Um, but yeah, that those things exist together of there's this, this myth that's created that to talk about trans healthcare is somehow to discount, um, you know, healthcare for people with uteruses and who um, bear children. And it's like, no, these things are like really connected of just like reproductive health and sexual health generally are severely underserved in our society um, for all genders, you know, targeted specifically um, at trans people in particular, uh, I would say. And it's completely, it's completely baffling uh, and, and hard to handle sometimes. But I think, you know, it's not we're raised in a, in a deeply competitive and individualist society. So it's not a big surprise that, that people gravitate um, towards narratives that, that put them in competition with other groups, but it's just something to watch out for as always. And, and really kind of think about, as you said, Teddy, you know, an injury against one <laughs> because yeah. it's really true. I, I want to just add one thing to that, which is that, so I'm, uh, for all you identity fraud people out there, I'm 34 years old, but when I was 14, I was working at uh, McDonald's and I remember working there and when we were trained as to what kind of toy we want to give uh, people for the Happy Meal, we were instructed specifically not to ask, do you want a boy toy or a girl toy, but instead, um, do you want a car or do you want a doll, you know, to be more specific about the toys and not gender it. And of course, um, that is correct like you shouldn't engender toys and of course since then to now I'm a parent myself and uh which is not to say I'm a single parent but I'm a parent and I I know that uh all the time I hear um when I get uh whatever happy meals or whatever for my kid it's presented as uh, do you want a girl toy or boy toy or even sometimes like oh you want the boy toy like to my daughter and I'm just like yeah you can get whatever toy you want it's all good but I just think it's very interesting that McDonald's, which is not the bastion of any kind of anti-oppressive politics, has had this sort of um, different motivation for why they wanted to um, take a, a, a less gender prescriptive role around their Happy Meals. And I think that that is, um, it's, it's, I guess, it just reiterates how I think socialists have to be on the on the ball with this and not leave it to capitalists to make these tiny, tiny ass gestures of uh, of what sort of a different way of people being can be. And and I think that it it's the case. I mean, you could just look around. There's so many problems it probably feels like we're on the retreat as socialists. And I think we 
we are wanting to have stronger forces than we have now. So I don't think it's accurate to say that we're in as strong as a position as we wish we could be in. But it's so um, it's so important when you're talking about trans liberation and gender oppression and the idea of what what constraints we want to we want to resist and we want to push against. It's so important to to have the question of like, well, what what do we want it to be like? Not just what is it, what is the thing we're responding to? Like, what is the the, the question we should ask, I think, is, of course, like we need to fight back against the specific grievances um, people experience, but what is the, the horizon of flourishing? What is, the, what is the place of liberation that we want to go? And I think that, well, McDonald's is sure as hell not asking that question when they, when they um, change the way that they're telling their young um, cashiers to ask questions about toys. And liberal feminism is, is not interrogating that. Radical feminism is responding to really rigid ideas, re- responding but reinforcing really rigid ideas of what people are and what they can be. And, and so, yeah, where do we want to go? You know, what, what do we accept as the, the limits of who we are and who we can be? That's, that's a question of liberation that I think you know, unless you're going to tackle capitalism and take oppression seriously, you're not going to get into that. And that's a question socialists and the socialists I like to follow and listen to. That's the way that they're, they're pushing. So yeah, that's what I think. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it is like that identity terrain generally is something that attracts so much right-wing backlash and reaction that it is really easy to, for a socialist or for a feminist to start in that kind of react to the reaction, as we talked about before, of playing the game by, by someone else's terms or someone else's even like understanding of, of how the world works and, and what's natural and what's normal. And you don't, you don't always have to get into those um, arguments, but it, it's good to kind of keep in mind that Oftentimes those arguments are not, not oftentimes, they're always, they're always in a, in a bad faith, um, bad faith binary um, that's presented. And yeah, I think that we're, we're seeing that now in terms of like how, how much speaking of, of trans issues, trans rights, the few that trans people have and the, and the small sliver of acceptance in mainstream society that trans people have been warranted in the past years have been, you know, fully, um, fully at- attempted to be clawed back and, and attacked. Yeah. And even also just like the, the Me Too discourse and, and cancel culture and feminism generally. Cause I have something I didn't say earlier, but I tried to be kind of kind to liberal feminism in a way in my, in my description, just because I've found recently that people, Maybe I should be more specific, but so-called socialists are left-leaning people that there's kind of a lot of dunking on liberal or mainstream feminism that I think goes beyond like a needed critique and kind of turns into like, here's the way I get to be misogynist safely. Yeah, I, I, I wanna, I read something by, um, there's, a, there's a booklet called um, 
I think it's called socialist feminism and it's, you can find it at the Winnipeg or sorry, at the Toronto um, new socialist website, um, if it still exists, but anyhow, it, it was a, it was written by some of the authors from feminism for the 99%. And um, like, there was a point made that it's like, you don't want to backslide on like liberal feminism doesn't go far enough and it treats the law as neutral and it doesn't, it doesn't go into the criticism of like what the power relations are as a whole. And it, you know, you just exchange a couple of people in certain positions and everything will be improved as the logic there is the weakness there, but you don't want to backslide on the, the ideas of equality and stuff like that. Like that you don't gain something by, by, by having a cover for misogynistic uh, criticism uh, or insulting comments directed at at a, at Kamala Harris. Although you know, I will always say Kamala Harris is a cop. <laughs> but, she is. She's big time a cop. Yeah, and hate on her. Hate on her for being a cop, not for being a a fake feminist. Yeah. For for sure, right? And I and I, it's so yeah. Just so people know, we're not standing for Kamala Harris, but. Um, but yeah, like, yeah, and then, you know, recognizing the depth of the problem of patriarchy and um, that radical feminism gets into, you don't want to come out of that by saying that's not real or the real problem is class and patriarchy is a secondary thing. Like that, that's not moving forward in a, that's, that's not an improvement, I'll say, you know, and, and same thing with intersectionality you don't want to just wholesale deny the whole thing and it's it's not an improvement to do that either so that's a really good point posy and 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 i think that it's um yeah it, it's yeah yeah i think that point of not going far enough is a good point because it's like i don't want to like go back to when women didn't have the right to vote or when women yeah. granted in the workplace I'm, I'm saying that like women getting like oh sick like equal opportunity exploitation under capitalism like isn't good but that doesn't mean that I don't want to be able to have the tiny bit of financial independence that comes with being able to work for a wage under capitalism you know what I mean like it is right it is right. somewhat better like it's obviously not enough um so I think that that's that's a good point because it is like, yeah, there are some some elements of, of liberal feminism that were helpful for a lot of women, um, but obviously not enough and not enough women and not enough better. Um, and that is like a, a fundamental limitation of the whole framework. And I think it is time that people move on you know, that, and I would also say that it's like people who identify as liberal feminists, and we talked this before about liberals generally on, on this podcast, that it's like, you're more likely to be able to win those people over to a socialist coalition than you are people who are radical anti-system um, on the right wing, which, you know, tends to be kind of this thing that gets kind of argued that, oh, we need to kind of people who've been disillusioned by capitalism but have like gone to this right-wing reactionary thing we can actually win them over and we can't win over the 
lipstick feminist and it's like I'd, I'd rather I'd rather make make a lipstick feminist um socialist than try to make a, a fascist socialist I don't know about you but um that's kind of something it's like those people are not with it as someone who used to be a liberal feminist those people are not without hope and I think a lot of socialists started as as liberals in some form or another so uh it's also good to kind of keep that in mind well, yeah. and I mean, and it makes sense at this time, right? I mean, it's not like they're um, like some of the massive social movements were were before so many of uh, the formative years of of our of people around our age. So, um, yeah, I think I think that context really matters. And I, I'm actually I'm glad you m- mentioned um, the fascist side of things because. I was thinking about how you, you know, on the topic of not backsliding, on the topic of not like losing even the, because liberal feminism itself is a response to not even the gains of formal equality under the law. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a, a needed response, right? But um, you think of like, if you think about like groups like the Proud Boys, um, those assholes um it's entirely a misogynistic group and it's it itself is a response to um to the problems of capitalism and the reaction of men um cisgendered men um failing uh the expectations they think is owed to them um and scapegoating um women and also having a a, a flawed systemic criticism um and instead turning to a hyper um masculinity and misogynistic reaction and you see a backslide to liberal feminism presented as an ideological response to the problems of capitalism and of course, capitalism is has gone through crises, crises and crises, and, and it's it's in a rough spot. It's not as profitable as it's in a recession. It the great slump of almost you know 20, 2008. It's just like in the time of the Great Depression, and then now you have COVID nineteen um, for for reasons that are that are part of capitalism. It's causing a lot of problems for a lot of people, and. And so there really is, there really are elements and currents that, that look to backslide on even, you know, the, the basics of feminism that, that we are arguing need to go further. So it's, it's important not to um, downplay the, the potential for this kind of backslide and that there are organized forces trying to make this happen because they 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 see this as the appropriate response to the material conditions so i think socialists thankfully um you know those groups are 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 incredibly marginalized um that try to do that but in the right conditions uh that kind of spark can 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 find the right um the right purchase in broader people's thoughts and this is another reason why socialists need to 
to to fight in this way uh, in in response to that and fight for a liberatory perspective and not minimize the chance of uh, or or reinforce the kind of backsliding of of minimal gains that have happened in the past without of course to do this without uh, without minimizing the the serious problems of and limitations of of um, what those gains may have been. I, I want to say one more thing, but we are, this might, we might just cut this, but I do want to say, because we didn't really, I just thought of it, and I kind of wanted to talk about it under liberal feminism, but just um, something else to kind of watch out for is, you know, I did mention, you know, Justin Trudeau calls himself a feminist, but how Western capitalist nation states will use feminism, use homonationalism, as like a, a you know reasoning behind um, this idea that certain nations are backward, we support human rights, we have a better quality of of life for women, we have you know gay marriage equality, all those sorts of things. So it means that when we start wars or reinforce wars elsewhere, that that somehow is liberatory to women and queer people around the world and just that's always bullshit i'll say, I'll say that now that that is 100 always bullshit we don't have to get much more into it but that that's also something uh to kind of keep an eye out for that it's both both corporations do that and and states do that in a pretty particularly evil evil way and justin trudeau you know, got your number, man. <laughs> There's both backsliding and also the those who kind of put forward this particular feminist um, agenda are yeah not actually doing it for women. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the imperialist machinations of uh, women in powerful positions um, to promote and and continue a, a brutal and imperialist system under the guise of feminism is not is not who we're talking about when we're talking about um, liberal feminists and and um, the the average person who might believe in these ideas um, and and the backsliding that those things are not examples of backsliding those are those are just straight up co option. Um, used to like i mean you said it and i don't have to just repeat it but i think that's a really good point i yeah. think that's a really good point and i think yeah it's and same goes with um so i think it's like just really important to distinguish between like people who think that having more equality in positions is a solution versus the function of say uh, an actual um you know a woman who is heading the military or heading police or, or a police officer or a boss or a CEO for like the actual people doing those things versus the, the idea that having that kind of change and, and um, the gender of, of a person in that role. And, and I think that in my opinion, I, in my opinion, I think we, we, we have um, much in common and, and, and points of solidarity and potential to convince the people who believe those notions, um, but the people in those positions are actually members of the oppressing and exploiting class and are not 
in my opinion, our our teammates um, to you know to try to join forces with. But yeah, but yeah, I mean, fuck imperialism. That's a good. That's a <laughs> fuck good. imperialism is yeah. a is a pretty good. Um, it's about to probably end it. Um, so thanks for chatting, Teddy. We will have for this episode um, some reading in the in the show notes. So make sure to check that out. Um, and hopefully there will be full of intelligent people who will fill any of the gaps of um, our ramblings today. But I think we just had a, a good conversation. I'm feeling I'm feeling amped up. <laughs> about about feminism and uh and capitalism and patriarchy so yeah yeah bye bye <laughs>